0: you opening your Bibles to John chapter 18. And we're in the final stretch in our study of the Gospel of John. And as we get into chapter 18 today, there's a little bit of a transition as we are now firmly on a path to the cross. Jesus has spent a great deal of time preparing His disciples not only in His ministry, but all through the farewell discourse that we studied that began in John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 16, and then the high priestly prayer that we looked at over several weeks in John 17. And now it is all coming to an end, and we look at the arrest of Jesus. We begin the study today. We will see the arrest more particularly in our time together next week. But this is a very significant significant transition within John. His purpose hasn't changed. His purpose has always been to accurately portray Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. He has done that very well. He has done that uniquely and differently than the other Gospel writers have. But in this section, Jesus' public ministry is over. He has been preparing His disciples for His departure. He has prayed for them and all who would believe in Him through their ministry. And now all of the focus is on the cross, the completion of the eternal plan of redemption is here. And in just a few short hours, Jesus will be on the cross and His disciples will see for themselves specifically the physical departure of Christ that they just can't even begin to imagine that they're having to witness. So His departure is hours away and Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the sinless perfect Lamb of God, is going to be at the mercy of, of sinful man. It's a terrible story, but it's one that we praise the Lord for because it's what gives to us hope and it's what provides for us the ability to know him as our heavenly Father. Let's read in John chapter 18 verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, "'Whom do you seek?' And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am He. And Judas also, who was betraying Him, was standing with them. So when He said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore He again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which He spoke, of those whom you have given Me, I lost not one." Simon Peter, then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear and the slave's name was Malchus. so Peter, excuse me, so Jesus said to Peter, "Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me shall I not drink it And so this is the first section in this journey to the cross, and we're going to take a look at the setting here. The setting is in the first part of verse one, when Jesus had spoken these things. And the setting is very simply, in my mind, the ending. The phrase, when Jesus had spoken these things, may either relate directly back to the prayer that He prayed that's recorded in all of John 17. It might also reflect back to what Jesus has said to them in the farewell discourse, that which began as they entered into the upper room, as He had washed their feet, as He has instituted the Lord's Supper. However we look at this, Jesus' public ministry is coming to an end. He had accomplished absolutely everything that the Father had given him to do, except for one, and that is the cross which lays before him. That reality is now on the horizon as the hour is finally coming, and so Jesus has gathered in the end, in the garden with His disciples. Verse 1 concludes, He went forth with His disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which He entered with His disciples. So it's important that we recognize that little phrase. It's insignificant to us in the English, but it says that Jesus went forth. He didn't just journey on the way. He wasn't meandering about. He was going forth with a divine purpose. He was leaving from Jerusalem just a week ago when there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands who were shouting, Hosanna, He who comes in the name of the Lord. And they had covered the streets with their cloaks and they had put palm branches beneath the donkey as He walked and they heralded Him as the soon coming King because that's who they believed Him to be. But He was going forth with a purpose from Jerusalem from the false hope of an earthly king who is going to put up an earthly throne and rule over Jerusalem and rid them of the hated Romans. He went forth from the upper room, from the place of farewell, from that final place of preparation, and he has traveled over the ravine of the Kidron. This is a place that is just east of Jerusalem. It's a very short distance. One could travel it in just a matter of minutes. And he went to the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, which was a very familiar place, a place of prayer, a place of privacy, a place of instruction. And so in the final hours of Jesus' life with his disciples, he takes them to this garden in order to pray. Now, John is silent on the events in the garden. But Matthew records for us in Matthew 26, verses 38 through 40. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Luke records this in Luke twenty-two forty-three to 46 Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus went to pray. He knew the agony of the hour that awaited Him. His soul was deeply grieved to the point of death, knowing that He who knew no sin was going to become sin so that the world who believed in Him could be spared from their consequence and from having to pay the penalty for their own sin. He would take upon Himself the sin of the world, and the Father would turn away from Him, not being able to look upon sin. And this realization overwhelms Jesus in His humanity in such a way that Luke says that He has sweat like drops of of blood now some say that's hyperbole but they have actually studied this medically and said that it is possible to pray with such stress that there are small capillaries in your face that can burst and you can actually sweat like drops of blood Jesus goes to pray but he also goes to the garden to be betrayed. Verse 2, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This was a common meeting place whenever Jesus was in the area. The Gospels accumulatively tell us that he often went to this place on the Mount of Olives when He was in the region of Bethany, which was just a couple of miles away, Jesus would often go to this garden. It is believed to be a large private garden owned by a Jewish family who were happy to allow Jesus to use it as He sees fit. It's a very familiar place to the twelve disciples because Jesus has brought them there with some regularity. He would sit alone with them. He would teach them. He would explain the day's events to them. He would pray with them and pray for them. He would develop this relationship with them that in the end would bring about such a commitment and belief in who He was that ten of the eleven of these men would die a martyr's death. Mount Olivet, the general area of the garden, is a common place in the Gospels You've heard of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus stands on this mountain which the garden is roughly connected to and He would teach the masses. It's very obvious, according to the Gospel of John and by the other Gospel accounts, that Judas was not surprised to find Jesus here because it was a common place of gathering. Judas didn't eventually lead the Roman soldiers and the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees because he understood the eternal plan of redemption. He led them there because he knew Jesus' habits. He knew that this was a place where the twelve would gather for this intimate bonding, for this spiritual connection. And Judas knew exactly where to lead those that would finally arrest Jesus. But tonight, this isn't a place of learning. It's not a place of teaching. It's a place of solitary praying. And it's a dreadful place of the ultimate betrayal. Verse 3, Judas then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. That phrase there that having received them indicates that this is a planned connection, that He has gone to meet with them, that the final plan is in place now to take them to Jesus so that they can do what it is they intend to do. Luke 22 tells us that before the Lord's Supper was instituted, Judas, Judas made plans with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. In John 13.27, if you remember in our study of the discourse, Jesus dismisses Judas from the upper room, and it is at this point that Judas goes to find the religious leaders and the soldiers that they have gathered on their behalf and begins the journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has received them, he met with them, he's confirmed the plan, he has received the money, and now he is on his way to consummate the arrest and the betrayal of Jesus, the one that he falsely professed to be his Lord. There are three groups present in this arrest, but John only mentions two specifically. The first group is the Roman cohort. At full strength, a Roman cohort would be between 600 and 1,000 men. But because of the massive feast that is taking place in Jerusalem, it is highly unlikely that the entire Roman cohort has gathered with them to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Like we would say that the fire department went to put out the fire. Well, not every single person in the fire department, but representatives from the fire department went to put out that fire. So it is estimated that there's probably a small section of this Roman cohort, 100 to maybe 200 men, who were going to go and carry out this arrest. The second group that is mentioned is the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. These are the temple police. These are the ones who take care of the temple, protect the temple, protect the rabbis, keep order in the temple. The Roman soldiers had absolutely nothing to do with that. But this group of people who are dispatched by the chief priest, by the religious leaders, have joined with this faction of the Roman cohort to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to carry out this arrest. It's impossible to know how many of this group is there But there has to be at least a substantial representation as we move into the trials, if there's any verification or validation that would take place in the trial that Jesus would be succumbed to or that he would be um, held to in the event that the police had to give any testimony. So the third group that is mentioned here is a group that John doesn't mention by name. It is included by implication, but this group is the chief priests and this is a group that Luke specifically identifies in his account. In Luke 22:52, we read that, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who would come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? So those are the three groups that have been joined by Judas to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, to carry out the arrest of Jesus. Now this is a very large group. It would be an, a very intimidating group as they march on their way to the garden. Now, if you know anything about Roman soldiers, they were intimidating. They were the most highly trained military group of the day. They were not known for their kindness or their mercy. They were not known to give second chances. They were a ruthless and a brutal group. And this group marching with the official temple police to the garden, showing up, would be an incredibly intimidating group of people to be facing against. So they are expecting Jesus to flee. And for this reason, they are bringing with them lights and torches and weapons so that they can squash this little uprising and it would please them to the nth degree to be able to do that because that's the kind of individuals the Roman soldiers are. So there's absolutely nothing in Jesus' ministry ever displayed that would indicate the likelihood of violence or rebellion. The only thing that could ever remotely be connected to violence or rebellion would be Jesus overturning The tables in the temple that would have absolutely nothing to do with the Roman soldiers or the Roman government. But there was nothing in Jesus' ministry or his MO, if you will, that would indicate the expectation of a violent uprising. But they have arrived in great force. They are prepared for the worst and they show up in the garden. So Jesus has gone to pray, he's gone to be betrayed. And He's gone, number three, to do God's will. Verse 4a, So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon Him, went forth and said to them... So Jesus has no intention of fleeing. He is simply going to do all that the Father has instructed Him to do. So knowing all things that were coming upon Him, He went forth to them... He makes Himself visible. He presents Himself to their very eyes, giving the indication there isn't going to be any fleeing or any trouble on His part. Now, there are some who believe that Jesus was surprised by His arrest, that He was caught off guard by the trials and the crucifixion, that He was an unwilling victim, and that He was reluctant to follow the divine plan, But this verse truly dispels that notion. He didn't hide in the bushes. He didn't hide behind the other men who were with Him. He steps forward and says, Here I am. Jesus knew everything that was coming His way. This betrayal, His subsequent arrest, the illegal trial, the beating, and His death on the cross to pay for the sins of mankind. He never fled. He never resisted. He displayed a calm and a quiet confidence in the sovereignty of God's plan and His role in it. Now, He prayed. He agonized. He said, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from Me, not My will, Your will. But Jesus is totally committed to the plans and purposes of God, and He very accurately understands His unique role in it. Though John does not record it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, that when this group comes to meet Jesus in the garden, Judas kisses Jesus to identify to the soldiers the one that they are to arrest. This is the prearranged signal that Judas gives to the chief priests and the Pharisees if in fact Jesus, Jesus hides Himself or denies that He is who He is, Judas is going to make it very, very clear who the real enemy is. Mark 14, 44. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. This is what Judas agreed to do for the 30 pieces of silver in exchange for Jesus. Now, in Jewish culture, there were several symbolic kisses. You could fee- you could kiss the feet, you could kiss the hand, you could kiss the head, you could his- kiss the hem of the garment. But Jodas chose the one that declared the deepest symbol of love and homage to a- to an intimate friend, and that was a kiss on the cheek. Nothing more clearly symbolizes the depravity of Judas's heart and the depth of his sin, that he would choose to kiss Jesus on the cheek, indicating that this is the most intimate, loyal connection I have. We are BFFs. I love this guy with all my heart. I would do anything with him. This is the guy that you're supposed to arrest and to take away. It is an unconscionable choice that Judas makes to signify the one they are to arrest with this most intimate Jewish customs, kissing someone on the cheek. The treachery of Judas is the most despicable and it is emphasized in this singular account. So after this despicable act of betrayal, Jesus approaches them, and in this exchange, we see number two in our outline, the majesty. We see the majesty of Christ. Verse B concludes by Jesus saying, Whom do you seek? No running, no hiding, no denying, no renunciation, nothing. Jesus simply says, Whom do you seek? Jesus, the one to be, attra- the one to be arrested, The one that is being betrayed goes to meet his captors and he takes charge. He basically says, who are you looking for? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Now, Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth, as some translations might say, is a formal legal way of identifying particularly the one that they are looking for you could say Simon the son of you could say Jesus the son of and here they identify Jesus of Nazareth and it makes no mistake in whom it is that they are actually looking for so before we get to Jesus's response i want you to notice what Jesus what John says about Judas and the fact that Judas was standing with Them. When Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss, he doesn't turn and join Jesus and the disciples. He backs away from Judas and he is now standing with those who are going to arrest him. It's a clear indication that Judas is not a part of the Twelve, he's not a part of the group, that he has no part in Christ that in fact he stands opposed to Christ, symbolized in the betrayal, and now firmly entrenched in the minds of the true disciples as they, say, as they see Judas aligned with those who are going to arrest him. We see the majesty of the I Am and verse 6, so when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, if you remember in our study, in the Gospel of John, all throughout the Gospel of John, anytime Jesus says, I am, the personal pronoun he is not in the Greek. It's supplied as a part of the translation. And what Jesus says in the Greek is ego am I, which means I am. That means only one thing in the Jewish culture, and in the Jewish religion, it means that I am the great I am, the one that you are seeking, the one that you profess to know, as Yahweh, I am. I am the one you're looking for. I am He. This name originates all the way back to Moses and the enslaved children of Israel when God was going to call to Himself This nation of Israel, and he says in Exodus chapter 3, as God is giving to Moses his instructions, Moses said to God, "'Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them?' And God said to Moses, "'I am who I am.'" And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so when Jesus says that I am the good shepherd, when he says I am the light of the world, when he says that I am the fountain of living waters, and when he stands here in front of the betrayer and those who would arrest him, and they ask, I want to see Jesus, he comes forward and says, I am. I am. It is the majesty of Christ. It is the affirmation of His deity. And it is Jesus simply saying, I am the one you're looking for. I am the Son of the Most High God. I am Yahweh. If you have seen Me, you've seen the Father. If you know the Father, then you know Me. And this is what Jesus is saying. And while this would be incredibly lost in the hearts and the lives of the Roman soldiers, every Jew who was standing there knew exactly what Jesus is saying. I am God Himself is the one that you're looking for. This I am rules over all. At the mention of the name I am, they, the enormous group there to arrest Jesus, drew back and fell to the ground. Well, when you read that, you've got to ask yourself the question, what does that mean? Who is, the, who is the they? What does this mean they drew back and fell to the ground? Well, there are a variety of ways that we can understand this. And there are a couple of very comical attempts to explain this. Some think that Jesus appeared out of the shadows and spoke loudly and startled these Roman soldiers and this temple police... And they stepped back and being in a large group, they kind of stumbled over each other and they fell to the ground like dominoes. That's one of the explanations. Another one of the explanations is this. Some believe that John is creating a theophany and a theophany is this divine appearance of God. And so something that John is trying to create that where these soldiers are seeing and hearing a divine revelation of God and they voluntarily fall to the ground as a sign of worship and reverence. But this is even more ridiculous because if this were true, as soon as they got to their feet, they would run up and arrest Jesus. It makes absolutely no sense at all. These are Roman soldiers. They're temple police. They are trained and armed. They're probably fanned out to cut off any possible escape so how ridiculous are these explanations? There is only one way to understand this. Jesus as the great I Am speaks the truth about who He is and His enemies are rendered powerless and by some invisible force they are pushed back and they simply fall to the ground. Why? Because the I Am has spoke. He rules Overall. And the spoken word of God is powerful. It is active. It is supernatural. Through the spoken word of God, everything that we know came into being. At the spoken word of God, the bush burns in the presence of God. At the spoken word of Jesus, the water turns into wine. At the spoken word of the I Am, Lazarus comes out of the tomb in his grave clothes. You see, Jesus reveals who He is, the I Am, that He rules over all. And it is in this declaration that they are rendered powerless this mighty, powerful Roman army, and they simply fall to the ground. There's no earthquake. There's no loud sound. There's no bright light like the transfiguration. Jesus simply says, I am, and they're rendered powerless, and they just hit the deck. They drew backward, which means they withdrew, which means they did that. They were so startled at the truth of what they heard that they withdrew and they fell to the ground like they would fall flat on their back. And people listen to this and they look at this and they say, that is ridiculous. How could that ever happen? Well, you know, in the book of Joshua, it records that the Israelites marched around the fortified city once a day. And on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times and they blew their trumpets and the walls of Jericho imploded and people said, that's ridiculous. That could never happen. And thousands of years later, archaeologists find the city and they say, this is very peculiar because all of these walls are fallen down on the interior of the foundation like an outside force Crushed them as opposed to something blowing them outward. You see, what is ridiculous to the lost mind of man is simply explained as truth through the supernatural God through whom all things are possible. These Roman soldiers don't retreat. They are trained to go forward. And yet at the declaration of who Jesus is, they fall to the ground. Not because they stumbled, not because they tripped, not because they were startled from Jesus appearing out of the dark. They certainly didn't fall because they were worshiping. They fell because Jesus is the name above every name. The majesty of Christ shows He has power over them. As they mysteriously and miraculously fall backwards and hit the deck, they have to recognize that there's something going on here that I can't explain and I certainly don't understand. But I just got knocked back on my seat And there was nothing I could do about it. Jesus has power over them as they helplessly fall to the ground. Can you imagine the scene? These highly trained, rough and tumble Roman soldiers and the full Roman soldier regalia looking at each other going, what the heck just happened? And they get up and they brush themselves off. They look at each other and they're just thoroughly confused. And verse 7, after this has taken place, therefore He again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. I don't know if we got a lot more timid and a lot more quiet, and they weren't as excited about announcing who it was they were looking after, but nonetheless, they announced it for the second time. And I wonder if they thought for a split second what's going to happen now, since we just got knocked back on our seats, but we see here a very clear portrayal of the majesty of Christ as he not only overpowers them, but he, as the I am, presents himself to them so that they can do what it is they have determined to do. And this brings us to our third point, and that is the submission. In verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek me, let these go their way. So Jesus has just demonstrated his ability to overpower them, to dominate them, to render them absolutely ineffective in accomplishing their task. But instead, he says, Here I am. I'm the guy you're looking for. I'm not going to run away. I'm not here to fight. I'm just here to let you do what it is you desire to do. You see, Jesus wasn't an unwitting or an unwilling participant in what was about to take place. He knew precisely what His role in the eternal plan of salvation was, and He was not going to walk away from it. He was not going to delegate it, but He presents Himself as I am the one that you're looking for. He's submitting Himself to to these sinful men for His peaceful and purposeful arrest. He asks for the release of His followers since He is the one that they're seeking and He simply says, let them go. Now, many many speculate that Jesus has asked them twice who it is that they're seeking in order for them to announce that they're only looking for Him so that there would be no legal grounds for them to arrest the disciples who were standing with Jesus. That's what leads us here into verse 9, to fulfill the word which He spoke of those whom you have given Me, I have lost not one. <clears throat> Jesus is the great shepherd, and He looks after and cares for His sheep, and He is always looking out for their well-being. So if anyone is going to get to His sheep, guess what? They've got to go through... The door. Who is the door? Jesus is the door. That's what He said. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheepfold. And if you're going to get to these guys, you're going to have to go through Me. He's already demonstrated His ability to overpower them just by declaring that I am. But He has also secured the release of His disciples by virtue of them acknowledging twice that they're only looking for Him. So in the temporal sense... It is not time for these men to be arrested. It's not time for them to be tried. They would likely not be able to withstand that kind of persecution. But after Jesus is crucified and is raised, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, then they will be arrested. Then they will be tried. Then they will be persecuted. But through the indwelling empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they will be able to withstand it. After all, they have an apostolic mission to carry out. It is not time for them to be persecuted for their faith. And we could assume that maybe they wouldn't do a very good job of withstanding that kind of persecution in the moment. We can only speculate on that. But in the here and now, Jesus has secured for them their release. And in the eternal sense, this is a restatement of the eternal security of the believer That to whomever belongs to Jesus, there is no one and there is no thing that can ever separate that or change that. We are in Christ. We are His forever. And it's a restatement of that truth as Jesus says here, excuse me, as John relays what Jesus has already said, is that none that the Father has given to me will be lost to Jesus. Luke 22-49 records a little bit of information that John does not record when those who were around Him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So the disciples understood now that Jesus had been betrayed with a kiss, that He has presented Himself for their arrest, and they have an idea of what is going to go on. But before Jesus can give an answer, we read in John 18.10, Simon Peter then, having his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Peter, the ever brash, impulsive one, doesn't wait for Jesus to say anything else, but he steps forward and he hits the high priest's slave in the head, and cuts off his ear. So at this point, Peter's declaration that he would die before betraying Jesus is true. Peter's willing to fight. Perhaps emboldened by the powerful display of the entire group there falling down when Jesus declared that he is the I Am, Peter decides that this is the right time to strike. Perhaps this was the beginning of the military battle that they hoped for and expected that would usher in Jesus' establishment of an earthly and a physical throne. We don't really know. But Peter was willing to fight, perhaps even to the death. And Luke tells us that Jesus heals the ear of Malchus, the servant, which is another powerful display, not only of the love of Christ, but of the majesty of Christ, as he's willing to heal the one who is there to arrest him and bound him over for trial. Well, Jesus intervenes at this point and He makes a declaration that in His submission, He is going to obey the Father. Verse 11a, So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. This is not a physical battle. Jesus was not an earthly king that needed His followers to protect Him. He was perfectly able of protecting Himself. Clearly displayed, as the Roman cohort and the temple police falling to the ground. But this isn't a physical battle, it's a spiritual one. Verse 11 concludes, the cup which the Father has given me shall I not drink. So Jesus knew what He came to do. He came to die on the cross. He's prepared His men from the very beginning for this moment. This cup of trial that Jesus is facing with separation from God as he was to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is to bear upon himself the judgment of God for the sins of the world. And so although Peter has noble motivation in striking the high priest, Jesus affirms that this is not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. I am here to obey the Father and you are going to obey, to obey the Father as well. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture, and I think it's one that we tend to zip through as we get to the actual crucifixion itself. But thinking about what Jesus went through as He prayed in the garden... And what he does as he stands before those who will arrest him. And what it is he portrays about himself to us. He's not surprised. He's not angry. He's not vindictive. He's simply going to accept the Father's plan knowing that this is what he was sent here to do. Would you pray with me? Father, as we think about the unjustness of the cross, as we think about these events that lead up to the cross, we very clearly know that Jesus could have escaped if He wanted to. We know that Jesus could have called down a myriad of angels to defeat the army before Him. We know that Jesus could have just waved His arm and stricken them all to their death. But He didn't do that. He stood before those who would arrest him, just as he will stand before those who will accuse him. And he will simply accept his role in the plan of redemption as the Lamb of God. Father, how we thank you for what you have allowed us to know about who Jesus is. I pray, Father, that you would drill even deeper into our hearts and minds and lives the significance of the cross, I pray, Father, that its familiarity would never allow us to think about it with a dullness of heart or mind, but that we would always be moved and amazed and in awe that the I Am went to the cross so that we could be cleansed and forgiven of our sin. Father, how we thank You for what You've done for us through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.